Onasu. So we come to the end of the mini-cycle on the mindfulness of breathing. We come to the point where it's a really classic Theravada approach, and among all the Buddhist traditions, East Asian, Southeast Asian, the Inter-Tibetan, this is the one that emphasizes mindfulness of breathing more than any other as a means to achieve shamatha. Uh, and probably just generally emphasizes it more altogether. It's so prominent in the Pali Canon. When we come here to the amplitude of the nostrils to do just a little bit of review, the whole system calms down the sensations of the breath, the actual passage of the air at the nostrils, becomes subtler and subtler and subtler. And focusing on such an increasingly subtle object is necessary in terms of the cultivation of finer and finer and finer vividness. Because after all, we're to overcome here not just coarse laxity, but medium laxity, subtle laxity. And so you won't get to very, very fine pitch or very, very refined, very sharp vividness or acuity of attention if you're attending to something that's really easy to attend to. It won't happen. It's too easy. So you're not challenged. You won't need to pay closer attention. And then to strike that balance of paying very close attention without going into constriction mode. Right? So that's familiar. The same is true in terms of the cultivation of vividness. The same is true in the settling the mind in its natural state. And that is going back briefly to mindfulness of breathing. You can very easily, even maybe it's already happened, I think for some of you already, get to the point where you're as closely as you're attending to your target area there, at the apogee of the breath, you just, you're just not picking up any sensation. The breath has gone so subtle, you just can't get it. Or maybe you only get it on the out-breath, or maybe only in the breath, but it's just kind of drawing a blank. I'm not getting anything, right? And then the classic instructions for that are attend more closely, but without seizing up, without tightening up, but do tend more closely. And then in that area where there seems to be an absence of sensation, or just the background sensation, just kind of that buzz, that kind of background radiation there in the target area. In addition to that, you'll find these subtle perturbations, very subtle perturbations of tactile sensation that shows the in-breath, the out-breath. So don't be satisfied just to think, oh, it's probably not happening. But that's exactly how you sharpen up, as if you're getting a finer and finer and finer whetstone to sharpen your blade, you know, from a blade to a scalpel to who knows what, but super, super sharp. So that's how that occurs. And then coming back to settling the mind in its natural state is the same thing. And that is, as you're attending to the space of the mind, you may at first glance just not be picking up anything. It may seem like there's there's nothing there. I'm watching, but there's nothing there. And so maybe, but the chances are there is something there but it's at a higher frequency than you're able to get to because your, your attention is working at a relatively low frequency, and that's a very high frequency. You're just not picking it up. So what do you have to do? Again, keeping that real mode of deep relaxation, of looseness, just pay closer attention. Pay closer attention for little, very brief little blips on the screen, just impulses of a flickering image that comes up or a fleeting discursive thought. It could be an emotion or a desire as well, but they can be very brief in duration, or just they may go on for seconds, but be very, very subtle. And so you simply need to attend more closely, and that's exactly what enhances the vividness of attention. And then also, you can count on it, when you get into a mode like that, where you're relaxed, you're stable, and you're getting that really sharp edge of detecting extremely subtle and very, very brief events in the space of the mind, 
that's when you're going to be doing, doing your deep dredging. So don't be at all surprised if you have a really nice session like that or maybe a whole day that's going really well. Don't su- be surprised if the next day it feels like everything's just falling apart. And that's precisely because you've gotten that sharp knife in, you're penetrating more deeply, and it stirs up stuff. Emotions, desires, memories, all kinds of things. So you start to expect that. That will happen. But this is exactly part of the practice. The stronger emotions, the memories and so forth come up. Good, grist for the mill. Now take that, you know, and respond to that in the same mode of relaxation, of attending to it without distraction, without grasping, right? So it's not like the practice goes well and then it goes poorly. It goes well and then it goes well. Because this is what should be happening. If it didn't dredge your psyche, then you're not going to penetrate from the conscious level of your psyche all the way down to the substrate consciousness. You don't get there with your eyes closed. This is eyes open all the way down. Okay? So there are two discovery models where we're getting a finer and finer whetstone to sharpen and ever more sharpen the blade of the vividness, the acuity, the sharpness of your attention, mindfulness of breathing, settling the mind. One can say, well, very, very much within the discovery approach, excuse me, the developmental approach. But now when we come, since you know where we're going at after, you know, in a few days, to awareness of awareness, you'll see that you're not getting new type of stimuli that are subtler and subtler, subtler sensations of the breath, subtler thoughts and so forth. When you're going for the long haul, here in mindfulness of breathing, the long haul is just attending to the sensations at the apertures of the nostrils. When you go for the long haul, the marathon run in awareness of awareness, you can stop the oscillation now, you can stop the exercises of you know, right, left, and all of that, and you just go into simplicity. And you're just resting there, again, like the hot, glowing ember sitting on the snowbank. Just let it happen to you. But now, as you're doing that, what you're attending to is just the sheer luminosity, the sheer cognizance of awareness itself, just resting in that awareness. So you're not looking for things to sharpen your knife with. And that's because this one, above all other shamatha practices, the, the awareness of awareness, this is really discovery model, discovery model. And that is the very nature of your substrate consciousness. It has those three qualities, right? Bliss, luminosity, and non-conceptuality. You're not generating them by thinking happy thoughts or trying to th- think really clearly. Or You're not generating them. You're unveiling them. And what are you peeling off so that it is unveiled above all grasping? Above all it's grasping. It's grasping to thoughts, but it's also grasping to dullness, grasping to laxity. It's grasping all the way across. So the more you can just release and release and release, but without releasing your cognizance, without going dull, spacing out, then rather than trying to cultivate greater and greater vividness by attending to subtler and subtler objects of attention, you're just resting in a deeper, deeper, deeper level of releasing of grasping such that the innate luminosity of your own awareness just shines brighter and brighter and brighter. You don't have to cultivate anything. Let the innate luminosity of your awareness rise up and engulf you, and when you come and rest at the bottom of the snowbank, your awareness is finally settled in its natural state. You'll say, whoa, there's nothing to cultivate here. This is what consciousness looks like when it's unencumbered, when it's not veiled by adventitious obscurations. That's what they're called. And then just think, what are those adventitious obscurations? We actually have a list. It's a really, really good list. Ill will, 
like what? Like boiling water. It's a really nice, I'll see if I can remember all of the analogies. They're very, very good. But if we consider that these substrate consciousness is like a pool of transparent water, crystal clear water, then if I recall correctly, when, you're, when your awareness is dominated by or caught in the grips of ill will, resentment, animosity, that whole genre, it's like the water, like if the water is boiling. How do you see through it when it's boiling? Well, the answer is you can't. It's just seeing bubbles all over the place, right? So that obscures, ill will obscures. And then there's attachment to hedonic pleasures, specifically the pleasures of the desire realm, all the bounties, the tangible ones like sensual pleasure and acquisition, the more intangible ones like fame and power and so forth and so on. Well, as soon as there is attachment for those, any of those, anything in the desire realm at all, then that's said to be like putting dye in the water, like a red dye, green dye, whatever kind of dye, and then the dye, of course, saturates the water. Can you see the water any longer? No, you just see the dye. So the kind of attachment or sensual craving, but it's really more the fixation or attachment to the bounties of the desire realm. That's what it is. That colors the water so much, you can't see the water. You just see the color. Right? So that's the second one. And then we have... Then we have um, laxity and dullness. Laxity and dullness. And that, as I recall, that's like water that just has a bunch of silt in it. Silt. Dirt. Grime. It's just, it's just dirty water. Then you can't see through it. And then you have agitation. What was that one? Ah, agitation. That is the ag- excitation and then the anxiety, the guilt, that little combo. Remember that one? Excitation and guilt or anxiety. That one's like water but with a wind whipping up the waves, whipping, whipping the surface. You can't see down through the surface. You just see the waves on the top. So that's that one. And then finally, a mind, and you've, I think you've already experienced this, the mind that just gets into, caught into uncertainty. It can be self-doubt, doubt in the practice, doubt in the teacher, doubt in the tradition, above all, doubt in yourself. I'm probably not, uh, not up to this. Or these are such degenerate times, probably nobody can achieve this any longer. How's that just for just, you know? And that, oh, by the way, you just showed everybody else as well. You know, it's kind of mass suicide. None of us can do it. Why? Because it's degenerate times. Boo-hoo. Oh, get over it. You know, it's degenerate times if you make them degenerate times. Or the Dalai Lama said, if you practice now like Milarepa, you'll achieve now like Milarepa. So cut the crap, you know. Just get real. It's degenerate as much as you make it degenerate. But nobody else can make you degenerate. Right. So there it is. And that one's like turgid water. Turgid. Turgid. Thick. Just can't, you can't go anywhere with it. Okay? Something like that. So those are the five obscurations. They're dispelled by releasing grasping to all of them when you're practicing awareness of awareness. And then they're dispelled using the skillful means of, mind, of mindfulness of breathing, settling the mind in ways that you know quite well now. So final point, and that is, as I've emphasized a number of times, mentioned that in the classic Theravada tradition, where this practice is so strongly emphasized, although, again, since the 20th century, as far as I can tell, it's gotten really watered down an awful lot by many, many teachers. And I, I don't know why, because the texts are really quite clear, but... 
I don't know. I guess they want to make it more user friendly, but then you wind up with counterfeit money, which I don't, I'm, I don't really care for that. Um, but the three points, the preliminary sign attending to the sensations of the breath, the acquired sign that arises spontaneously, and then at that point where we actually achieve shamatha, access to the first jhana, this very, very subtle sign, extraordinarily more subtle than the acquired sign, this counterpart sign that arises from the form realm, that emerges, when that emerges, you achieve shamatha. So that's classic, which means that at some point, whenever it is, stage three, four, five, six, whenever it may be, when that acquired sign clearly arises, it's persistent, it's homogenous, it's that is the same, same each time, it appears right in your target area when your mind is very stable and balanced and clear. You say, yep, it's a lock. This is a clear, a definite ID. You know, it's a 100% identification, like a thumbprint. This is the acquired sign. Then you know that from that point on, then you shift over to the acquired sign, which is purely a mental image, and you, you disengage from the flowing sensations of the in and out breath. So in a way, then, it's no longer mindfulness of breathing. It's phase two, which has kind of left mindfulness of breathing, per se, behind. So I do have a lot of confidence, a lot of confidence in that. I'm sure this is based on experience. There's a lot of good reason nowadays also, because people are having these experiences. So I'm not questioning it. I think there's just, there's just an enormous amount of experience behind this report of the preliminary sign, the acquired and preliminary sign. <clears throat> so I'm not putting it in doubt. I mean, anybody can doubt it. You can welcome to doubt it. I'm just saying I don't. But if the occurrence and the, sh the occurrence of the acquired sign and the preliminary sign and the shift away from the focus on the breath to the acquired and the counterpart sign, if that's really just integral, indispensable, core to the practice of mindfulness of breathing, one might expect that the Buddha would have taught it but he didn't. Nowhere in the Pali Canon. I mean, the Buddha's own teachings, and it's like 35 volumes. That's a lot of material there. In other words, he was teaching for about 45 years. He had time. You know, it wasn't like, oh, just missed it. You know? He had plenty of time, and he referred to mindfulness of breathing so many times that if the, the shift, this interpretation from the, these three signs, if this was really core, one really might think he'd mention it at least once, and the fact that it never comes up even once then does imply this is an interpretation from one of the schools of Buddhism, namely the Theravada. That doesn't mean it's a false interpretation. There are a lot of insights that are coming out from later contemplatives, pundits, and so forth that are valid, they're deep, they're transformative, they're meaningful, and the Buddha Shakyamuni in the Pali Canon or the Sanskrit Canon never mentioned it. So that's not a problem. We're not being rigid fundamentalists that only what the Buddha said, only that's true and nothing else outside. That's crazy. And the Buddha never encouraged us to think that way. After all, he's speaking for a finite period. So, but it is an interpretation. Since, after all, it's not there. They're not just reading off the script from the Pali Canon, from the Buddha's own discourses. Now one can ask, well, okay, well, how about other currents, like this massive Indo-Tibetan current, going back to Vasubandhu, to, to Nagarjuna, to Asanga, Dignaga, Dhammakirti, and so forth, Chandragomen, and so on. And many of the Shantideva, the list goes on and on, 1,500 years, you know, uh, or a, a, an easy 1,000 years, more than 1,000 years, of the Indian Mahayana Buddhist tradition based upon Sanskrit sutras, teachings attributed to the Buddha but recorded in Sanskrit. And they're not the same as those recorded in the Pali. There's complementarity, there's overlap, but they're not the same. So how about that tradition? And this was formidable. This is the tradition of the great Mahasiddhas, 
the tradition of Shantideva, of Nagarjuna, of, of Atisha. Oh, the list goes on of, whoa, this is powerful tradition. And they're based on the Sanskrit sutras of the Buddha, and they're based on the Sanskrit commentaries by these formidable people. And, and among them, really, if one, one looked at 1,500 years, or at least, let's say, more than 1,000 years, of just the greatness of Indian, Maya, Indian Mahayana Buddhism, there are two figures that kind of like the Twin Peaks that you say, well, boy, there's certainly among all the, those who followed after the Buddha in the Mahayana tradition, there's, I'd have to say, there are probably no two that are more prominent, that spire higher, that are more exalted, more re, uh, admired, respected, regarded as authorities than Nagarjuna and Asanga, those two. Nagarjuna for wisdom, Asanga for skillful means. Right? Very commonly known. And so there they are. Well, this means that for the whole Indo-Tibetan Mahayana current, Asanga is going to be one of the most formidable authorities that you're going to find anywhere, just as Buddhaghosa is certainly among the top two or three most formidable authorities for the whole Theravada tradition. So did Asanga, writing about contemporary with Buddhaghosa, 4th, 5th century, did he refer to, did he, did he unpack, did he explain mindfulness of breathing? Yes, he did. He did, rather elaborately. In a text called the Shravaka Bhumi, or the, these, the Bhumi means the grounds, the stages of the path of the Shravakas, those seeking their own individual liberation, seeking to become arhats. It's a, it's a classic, it's a masterpiece. And so about 25 years ago, when I was studying Sanskrit, I took on, I, I ferreted through that text in the Sanskrit and the Tibetan, and translated just his section on Anapanasati, on mindfulness of breathing. And I just was reviewing it. Uh, I'm pretty familiar with it since I translated it, but it's always good to go back as your brain cells are dying off. And uh, just to make sure that I hadn't missed something previously, well, number one, I knew he makes no reference to the three signs. They're not anywhere there. As far as I know, they're not anywhere found in the whole Mahayana tradition, including India or Tibet, nowhere to be found. So could they be really indispensable if the Buddha didn't teach them and the whole Mahayana current skipped them? Never, no mention of them, not refuting them, just, it just doesn't come up. And so as I was reviewing just a few minutes ago, Asanga's teachings, he's teaching in many ways very similarly, that is, as one breathes breathe in long, one knows one breathes in long, breathes out long, breathes in short, out short, attending to the whole body, but he doesn't say the whole body of the breath, he just says whole body, leaves it at that, uninterpreted, unmassaged, and then calming the whole composite of the body. He also lays out 16 phases, of the mindfulness of breathing. So there's a lot of common ground there. But my point here is that, once again, he makes no reference to visualization. And great masters like Gampopa and Sakya Pandita and Lama Mipam Rinpoche and, of course, Tsongkhapa and so forth, these great, these towering peaks of Tibetan Buddhism, when it comes to shamatha, and if they're going back to the Indian sources, it's really hard to avoid a sangha. He's really formidable, right? Really formidable, especially for this kind of thing. For Madhyamaka, of course, you've got a Nagarjuna, Chantikirti, and so forth and so on. But for the skillful mean side, the Shamatha and Bodhicitta, for example, well, he, he looms very large. And he makes no reference to visualization at all. He just says, as the breath, you know, long breath, short breath, and all that kind of business. And, but no reference to the counterpart side. Quite interesting. And, he did spe- and then attending to the in and out breath, one attends to the whole body, he says. So it raises an open question for which, which I don't have an answer, I don't want to give an answer, and that is, 
could you just follow the breath all the way through, knowing full well what Tsongkhapa points out, which is certainly true, that you'll not achieve shamatha if you still, still dropped your anchor of your attention in the desire realm, and that is in the five physical senses. You're not going to achieve it, because one's in the desire realm, and shamatha, when you achieve shamatha, you're lifting anchor and going from the desire realm, crossing the threshold over into the form realm. That defines it. That's your first entry into or access to crossing the threshold over into the form realm. It's shamatha. It's not anything else. It's just shamatha. That defines it, right? So could there be a way to affirm both of these, that you can attend to this increasingly subtle breath, the sensations of the breath, for example, at the apertures of the nostrils, and yet still achieve shamatha without attending to some other mental object like an acquired sign or counterpart sign? Could that be the case? Here's one possibility. Which is then, it's just a possibility not to, I I have no interest in debating it, either trying to defend it or to defeat it. I'm just saying, here's a possibility. But as my strong sense is, the only way to test whether that possibility is an actuality, whether or not it might actually be true, is going to be on the meditation cushion and not on the debating grounds and writing erudite papers. And that is, could, could this be true? That you're sitting there, or lying down, whichever way you like, and you're focusing on this increasingly subtle object. And now you're, you're going through stage six, stage seven. I know of someone who achieved stage seven, and no reference to the acquired sign. No reference to the acquired sign. Stage seven is pretty formidable, right? So could it be possible that you're attending there, and this is getting so subtle that by rousing greater and greater vividness of attention with the sharper and sharper introspection, recognizing coarse, medium, subtle laxity, coarse, medium, subtle excitation, that by attending with continuity <clears throat> to the whole, whole course of the breath, and as it gets subtler and subtler, almost invisibly subtle, that your whole system just calms down, calms down, calms down. As the Buddha said, the fourth stage is a calming of the composite of the body. The prana system just getting like super tuned, super tuned. This really is a pranayama. This is a natural pranayama method. That by this practice, your your prana system gets so super tuned, I mean just micro, like Ravi Shankar, like him tuning the sitar. Like it takes two hours, because he's hearing with, a, with, a, with an ear that almost nobody has. Right? And that's why probably two hours is a bit of exaggeration, but not that much. And so could it be that by this practice and the breathing getting so subtle that you just super tune your whole system to the point that you trigger this shift in the pranas in the body, which if you go back to attention revolution or my sources, and you'll see that's a major that's a major sign you're about to achieve shamatha, right? Major sign, right? First of all, that what arises is that 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 serviceability, that pliancy, buoyancy of the mind. That's that's the initial trigger, and little symptoms on the top of the head, but the interior interior, the first sign that oh you've just broken water you're about to give birth to shamatha is that unprecedented pliancy, buoyancy, lightness, suppleness of the mind. And that triggers then something energetically. 
and that is this pliancy, buoyancy of the, of the pranas throughout the whole body. That triggers bliss that saturates the whole body. I mean, just filled with bliss, like putting your both fingers in an electric socket and you know, just totally sat. You're blissed out, physically blissed out. And then as if that just bubbles over into the mind, if we think of the, you know, the body here and the mind above, which is silly. But if you think of that, then it just kind of it flows out. That the, the bliss just overflows the body and it saturates the mind. So then you're mentally blissed out. And then that tapers off. And then you've achieved shamatha. So could it be? that with this pranayama technique, this natural pranayama, because all the subtlety of it, the power, the depth, the nuance, the efficacy of it, is all from your own system. It's not because you had a really clever teacher or you had a great lineage or something like that. It's just your body doing this. And you're just doing the simple practice, attending to it. Could that trigger this radical, number one, tuning, and then that opening up, this total free flow of pranas within the body, giving rise to this utter serviceability of the pranas within the body, which then would trigger the bliss, which would trigger the mental bliss, which would then simmer off, taper off. And in so doing, you, in that triggering, you would disengage your attention from this little finger hold, these extremely subtle sensations of the breath, a little fingernail hold there in your target area, having tuned it that much and triggered this shift in the energies in the body, that when this takes over, then you say, bye-bye. You disengage at the last moment. The bliss surges up, the mental bliss surges up, and you've left the desire realm. But you kept your pinky on it in that subtlest of sensations of the in-and-out breath, right almost, almost to the end. And then just when it's no longer useful, then you release it, you go totally mental, senses completely collapse, because they've They've almost collapsed entirely here already. Some of you may have already experienced this. When you really kind of go into the zone, really single-pointedly attending there at the apertures of the nostrils, and the sensations get very subtle. Sight fades out. Sounds fade out. The rest of the body fades out. Taste and smell, forget about it. And so there's hardly anything left. I mean, that's your one contact with the desire realm. These vanishingly vanishingly subtle Sensations right there, right in the center. And that's your, that's your point of departure. Touch there, release there, go totally mental. So is that true or not? Let's get cracking. Let's find out. Settle your body in its natural state and your respiration in its natural rhythm.
For a little while let your awareness be diffuse, but contained within the field of the body. Always come back to this initial balance of relaxing more and more deeply with each out-breath, without losing the clarity with which you began. Now, whether your eyes are open, hooded, or closed, as you wish, it's of great importance that you keep your eyes utterly soft, unfocused, and disengaged from the meditative process, from the focus of your attention. Let your forehead be open and spacious. Let there be an openness between the eyebrows, a softness of all the muscles around the eyes. This is crucially important. So throughout the session, periodically check up to see that no constriction is arising anywhere in the face and especially around the eyes. As you now elevate and narrow the focus of your attention on the tactile sensations of the breath above the upper lip or at the apertures of the nostrils, wherever they are most distinct, As you attend closely to these sessions, periodically note also with your faculty of introspection that you're not even inadvertently modifying or constraining the breathing in any way. Let it continue to flow effortlessly and without constraint. 
arouse and focus your attention with each in-breath, overcoming laxity. Relax in body, relax the breath, release thoughts with every out-breath, thereby overcoming excitation. To the best of your ability, attend to the whole body of the breath, the whole course of in-breath, whole course of out-breath, leaving no space for intervening thoughts, images, memories. Insofar as you find it helpful, you may punctuate the flow of mindfulness of breathing with staccato counts at the end of each inhalation, counting one through ten, one through ten, or simply continue, continue counting as you wish. This is not a necessary element of the practice. It may be helpful. You must check out for yourself.
as always, apply also your faculty of introspection and apply the remedies as needed with which you're well familiar. And let's continue practicing now in silence.
small amount. So, so just two questions. One's a bit long, not too long, and then we'll open up. Still have more than half an hour. So, questions about work. Can you comment or make any suggestion regarding a gradual downshift for those in early to mid career? <coughs> it tends to be so individual. It's a very good question, but it tends to be so individual, um, it, and it and it in the sense that to how many dependent, uh, how do you say, people do you have who are dependent on you? If you have children, that makes things a lot more complicated, not only in just paying for them, but also spending time with them, being a, a good parent, which is a major part of Dharma practice. If you're going to be a parent, better be a good one. Uh, so there's that. It also depends on where you're living. Some areas, really expensive. Other areas, even in, in North America, not that expensive. So. I think one simply has to be creative. It's a very good, very good question, but it's hard for me to make any valuable generalizations, I think, just because so many situations, different continents, we have uh, people from so many, wonderfully, so many ethnic groups right here, multiple continents here. It's just different. So I make, if I make a statement that might be pretty good for North America, it could be irrelevant for Brazil. Make one for Brazil, or won't you work for, for, um, you know, for Australia, etc. But teaming up, I remember years ago, I knew one doctor, woman doctor, mid-career, very successful, very bright, very you know, capable. And, but, and she, was, she was working in a private clinic with a partner, and it was long hours. It was really a very, very full-time job. She was making good money, I'm sure, back then. That was a long time ago. Um, but then really didn't have much time for Dharma practice, and she really wanted to have more time. So then she worked out with her partner, I think it was two people, two women running the clinic, that she was just going to go half-time. And half-time of a full MD salary in the United States, at least that time, and I think maybe even now, I don't know that she had any children. And she had a husband who was working. That was important. So he's bringing in a salary. So she cut down half-time, so she's just working just that, brought in still enough salary that she, you know, she was making it, uh, and then she had a lot more time for practice. So... Uh, just so many complicating factors. Do you, have a, do you have a spouse, a partner? Is that partner working or not? Uh, I know one, one woman, uh, she's, I don't think she's working at all in an income-providing job. I want to be careful here. Uh, she has one child. I want to keep it a little bit anonymous here. One child who's now an adolescent. Her husband is very successful, working, get a good salary. He's a pretty low-maintenance husband. He works pretty much all day. On the weekends, he likes to go off and do his hobby. Uh, and they have a nice marriage, but you know it's very kind of a. Uh, she's there. It is. I think I've described it. So she has a lot of time. She has a lot of time for practice, and she's a good mother. She's a very loving person. I think she loves her husband. Nice relationship there. But she does have a lot of time. So I think it's about all I can say there for that one. I think to be really creative, to work with other people. If there were a small community of people really devoted to Dharma, perhaps they collectively could work out something where each one could work just part time. Uh, and then how did the long, long-term long retreats go, difficulties and joys? Oh, that's extremely complicated. There are a lot of them now. There are over like 30 of them or so. And some still still there in full retreat um, from the Shamatha Project five years ago. Um, as I said, they've had to, from, from Alma's generation, let's say, uh, overall they've had to move around a lot. But a few have stabilized, namely one, three, seven of them, Seven of them definitely stabilized. They found place. Well, okay, six have definitely stabilized. One, perhaps. But the environment was, a, was an enormous issue, as I've mentioned before. Uh, those from the preceding uh, Phuket retreats, 
uh, again, environment, 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 it, always, it just keeps on coming up. And I would say this, for those of you who might be interested in going from here to solitary retreat or you know, long-term retreat immediately after this, um, it can go well if you're on your own. I know some people have tried this at home. Uh, one person comes to mind, a young man, two very supportive parents. I've mentioned him earlier, tough when he just has his room, and loving parents, supportive. I mean, go for it, go for it. But he's got a bedroom and a house where the television's on and parents are fully involved in active society. As soon as he comes out of his room, it's like, whoa, you're in a major city with parents who are totally dedicated to a socially active way of life, and it's, um, it's not optimal. It's just not optimal. And then other people going into total solitude, they find a, a cabin somewhere all, all by themselves in the boonies, out in the wilderness someplace, or remote, if you're an experienced meditator, if you've gotten accustomed to solitude, you're relaxed there, you're, you're, you're with, free of anxiety, you're, you're very good in terms of setting the discipline but not too tight, uh, that can be good. But for a lot of people, if they're not that experienced as solitary hermits or yogis, um, it can be lonely. You can start uh, getting tapped out in terms of inspiration. Um, it can get a bit dry. So overall, just as the Buddha said when, the, now going right back to the Buddha, he said when a person was first taking ordination, uh, the strong advice was, if maybe it was even a, a, a rule, but the strong advice was when first taking ordination, you would spend five years in a, in a monastic community with fellow monks or nuns, with a teacher, with a proctor, somebody really looking after you, and to teach you the ropes. What is it to be a monk? It's not just having a whole bunch of vows. That, those are just rules. Any more than a marriage, it's just, okay, what do I have to do? You know, oh, these are my marriage vows. Oh, got to do that and that. There. Okay, check, check, check. Okay, good, I'm a good husband. You know. Well, it's the same. And so, so coming back to that, uh, having some companions. So he said for five years, and then once you've been in a community, you've really learned the whole monastic way of life, you've learned Dharma well, you've learned how to meditate, then if you want to go off to the jungle and be a solitary yogi out there sitting under a tree, well, five years should be a good preparation. But to go from eight weeks to a long-term solitary retreat could be a tough road to hoe. And it can be a lot easier if you have two, one, two, three, four companions. So you have some group energy there, some friendship, some warmth, community. It can be very helpful. So I think that's it for those two. So overall, I would say, if I had to give a generalization, and it's hard when you're talking about 30 people, on the whole, they really are flourishing. I don't know of a single one who's going through any really serious problems and really struggling and so forth. They're fighting the good fight. They're dealing with the stuff that comes up. But rather than doing it for eight weeks, they're doing it for a year, two, three, four years. Um, they're flourishing in the Dharma. And again, when I say that, I'm not referring to just to developing attention skills, but really finding the maturation is taking place on multiple levels. So that's been very encouraging. But it does keep, on, uh, keep bringing me back to the broken record of uh, the need to create environments and to my mind, I mean, it would be fine to have 40, 60, 100 of them in the same place as long as they had their own private space so you're not you know, all clustered and getting congested. You've got a lot of land. That would be fine. Uh, but either individual cottages or something I want to explore, because I'm, I'm really not very clear in my mind, but could we create cottages that would be little quads of four separate, extremely well-insulated, in terms of noise insulation, four rooms, maybe with one bathroom, toilet, sink for all four. Uh, but could that be? So th those four would be in their own little unit. And, they would, and the people who are moving into that fourfold unit 
would make sure they have really good chemistry, they get along with, well with each other, no little burgeoning romances coming up, because you can do a romance or you can do shamanic, you can't do both at the same time. You can be in a, in a relationship at the same time, that's no problem. But starting a fresh romance in the midst of a shamatha retreat, bye-bye. One's going to go, either the romance or your shamatha, but they're not going to be both starting up simultaneously. That's kind of thing I can guarantee. Um, but might that work, having, having units of four, so you can have one, two, five, ten, fifteen, twenty of them with enough land so that each one, each little community of four feels, yes, we have our little family here. This is really congenial. We're very relaxed with each other. There's, we're not complicating it with sexual attraction and all of that, just kind of focusing on our dharma. And then on occasion, maybe once a day, having all the troops gather for a group meditation and just feeling, whoa, we're really in this together, are we? This is the whole, this is the whole crew. You know? And then going back to the individual cottages. So I think that would be really the way to go because I've been watching this now for some years and having some group energy there and having a bit more access to a teacher or teachers teachers, multiple, uh, would be very helpful. Okay. So I'm going to go right hemisphere first. Yes, we'll start over here with James. If, if bliss does arise... Um, bliss, did bliss, you bliss. Um, right. Yes, like like the feeling that one gets when one wakes up in a dream. Uh, just speak more clearly. I can't quite get it. Like the feeling one gets when one wakes up in a dream. Yeah. Oh yes. Okay. Good. Like oh wow, great! It's finally happening. Yeah. Kind of, kind of euphoria. Mm -hmm. It's it can be really destabilizing. Yeah, I can. So what what do you do? Treat it like any other emotion that comes up, because it, it is one more emotion. It happens to be a pleasant one, and whatever emotion comes up, whether it's fear whether it's sadness, whether it's bliss, or any other emotion, as much as you can, relax around it. Give it larger space. As much as you can, simply be aware that it's arising, but without getting caught in its grip, without the cognitive fusion. And so there it is. Kind of, just maintain that looseness, the relaxation. I'm going to always come back to that. Um, but in the meantime, if you're focusing on, let's say, the sensations of the nostrils or the breath, and just keep focusing there. And the, and the bliss is kind of rushing in on you. Hello, hello, hello. You say, yeah, whatever. And just keep, keep, keep focused right there. If you're settling the mind in this natural state, then you're simply aware of the coloration of the space of your mind arising, this bliss, the strong emotion arising. As much as you can, just be present with it. Just be present with it. Don't identify it. Don't possess it. Don't hold on to it as mine. Don't get sucked up into it. Lightly, loosely, without dissociating from it, without trying to push it away, just, just be aware of it occurring. If you're practicing awareness of awareness, that worked. Then the bliss is of no interest. It's just of no interest. It's like, you know, you shot your rocket up to where the Hubble telescope is, 300 miles above. You just don't care whether it's, you know, a pretty sunset down below. Um, whatever it is, it, it's fine, but I'm really not interested. As much as you can, focus on something even more interesting, and that is that just sheer awareness itself. Okay? So different techniques. Okay, um, we'll do one written one, and then we'll come over to the left side. This is a long one, though, and it's in pencil. 
having, okay, I'm just, okay, and it's anonymous, that's fine. So, after, after having freed my breathing and allowed it to settle very nicely, simultaneously having released gross mental phenomena, I usually arrive in a space where more subtle mental activity of a skittish, nervous nature blocks further relaxation and, con- and concentration. It is like a sensitive electric, electromagnetic field that reacts, kicking up tiny thoughts and brief images in response to any effort to relax and observe the breathing more deeply. It can even stir when I become aware of self. This can go on for hours and has become a major block. Is this a... Pra- is this a Chronic disturbance is this resistance to samadhi, as mentioned in Attention Revolution, what to do? Number one, it's very common. You're moving from coarse excitation to subtle, to medium excitation and subtle excitation. So you're kind of, if you are a surfer, going, you're wanting to get out through the break. You have these big waves coming in, and you break through that, and then you have another wave, and you have another, another set of waves. Maybe you have three breaks there. Uh, and so you've just gotten through the break, that is the waves crashing over, of the coarse excitation. And now as you're getting subtler, number one, your awareness is getting clearer, so you're probably going to be more distinctly aware of what's coming in. As your mind gets somewhat calmer, uh, then you'll be more distinctly aware of, and they're going to rise with a bit more, in a way, power, because you're sensitive to them. It's like a very sensitive person is very sensitive to other people's emotions. And so what to do there? Well, one thing was we've only been here for two weeks, so perseverance is always a good idea. Just continue through it. Relaxing more deeply. Of course, I'm going to keep on saying that all the way through the eight weeks. Releasing, and then the out-breath. If you're practicing mindfulness of breathing, and I think that was the reference here, uh, if you're practicing mindfulness of breathing, just get totally into the flow, like a bicyclist with the, you know, the, 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 the pedals going around and around and around. Just get into the flow of every time you're breathing out. It's as if with a sigh of relief, like, and whether it's big birds, a big, big, large, chunky thoughts coming in, or little warblers and sparrows and hummingbirds of little thoughts flickering in and so forth and so on, whatever it is, it's just kind of like a, like breeze that just blows them all away. Big bird, a little bird, whatever it may be. That's just total release. Like, I don't care what you have to say. I don't care whether you're interested. I know whether you're happy or sad, virtuous or virtuous, non-virtuous. I don't care. I'm fully occupied. And blow them off. Just every out-breath. Because it's a natural time to release. And rather than trying to tighten up about them or getting frustrated or figure what antidote do I need to apply, how can I be clever? Don't be clever. Just release. Keep up with that. On the one hand. On the other hand, there's a saying in... I think probably for all of the English speakers, Australian, UK, America, and so forth, if you can't beat them, join them. All heard that one? I know you have. Uh, If you can't beat them, join them. Okay. If these thoughts are just piling in, piling in, piling in, and as much as you try to relax, it's just not working. It's just this drone of chit-chat, chit-chat, chit-chat. And it seems to be just too subtle to be able to release. So you can't beat them. Then join them. And that is, okay, 
I'm going to suspend for the next session. I'm not going to go to mindfulness of breathing. I give. Okay, you win. You win. I give up. I can't get you to go away. I tried. I couldn't. So I failed. Okay, thoughts come up front and center. I'm ready for you. Welcome to the party. I'm the gracious host. You're the unruly guests. Welcome to the party. Where are you? Hello. I send out the invitation. Any time now. Really? Come on. <coughs> Give him an opportunity. There's this kind of internal tension. I, I know when I was in my first shamatha retreat, a long one, under His Holiness, back in 1980, he gave me a visualization practice, pretty, pretty gnarly visualization practice. And it really, I'll just say bad, variation on the theme came to mind. Like, oh, uh, give me a break. Uh, that, that's disgusting. It was a variation on what he told me to do. And I really didn't like it. What do you suppose happened? It just came all the time. And I'd be so disgusted by it. Oh, not ah, uh. <laughs> ah. And it was like a brat. It's like a brat. You know, a brat, little kid that just likes to piss you off. And if the brat finds that you know pulling on your pulling on your sock, going over to Maria, she, so the brat, not you, but the brat over here, it just finds that while Maria is really engaged with the conversation and so forth, just pull on her sock, and it irritates her. She says, stop that. And the kid smiles. Oh, man, I know how to push a button. She's bigger than I am. She's smarter. She's more adult. She's got more power, more money, and everything. But I can still piss her off. <laughs> she says, stop that. Do it for the whole time. As long as she still says, stop that. And especially if she starts, stop that, or you'll be sorry. Or, yeah, how sorry? <laughs> you know? <laughs> That's the internal deal. The mind is a spoiled brat. At least mine was. Eventually, I kind of outgrew that one. I mean, they're not going to go on forever. But there can be this internal tug of war, and it's driven by grasping. So if some image comes up, some image that you really find attractive, and you grasp onto that, well, that'll come in, because it's driven by grasping. But my grasping was, re was aversion. I don't like this. Go away. I don't want you here. And so this totally inside job, therefore, of course, it comes back because I was grasping onto it with aversion. So when you settle the mind in its natural state, and whatever it is coming up, whether it's some really vulgar image, or one student of mine who's often been off in retreat told me some really some awful imagery or thoughts were coming up, you know, really like, oh, so embarrassed, so embarrassed. I said, hey, you're not morally responsible for every image that comes up in your mind. Why would that be? That's crazy. I've often mentioned inadvertently with my wife, 1992, 20 years, 22 years ago, no, 22, 20 years ago, when we were stuck in Chengdu for 10 days waiting for a visa. And we're, it was, we're really, frankly, we're pretty bored. I mean, the city was really pretty dirty and not very interesting, and we really wanted to go to Tibet. And we finally found a movie theater. Anybody know the story? We found a movie theater where the actors were Western actors, and it was like three times more expensive 
than the other movies. It's kind of the Chinese Chinese movies. And we, we didn't speak Chinese, so we didn't want to see that. But finally, OK, here's one with Western actors. And it was three times more expensive. This must be a good movie. So you figured it out. <laughs> so we came in, two little lambs. You know, two, I mean, we were really innocent. My wife and I, oh, now let's sit down. It was a small theater. Wow, it's going to be really good. <laughs> yeah, I think you've all guessed it. It was disgusting porn. It was like barnyard porn. Like, oh. And we saw about uh, probably about 10 seconds of it. And I, I think we figured this one out and we're out the door, of course. It was just disgusting. I don't know why. Well, there it was. But those imprints came on the mind. I mean, they, they, they're, they're quick to show you the goods. I mean, you, you don't get a slow buildup. They go, ah, like to see a vagina? There's one. You know? So the imprints made their way in. Right? I had no choice about it. So does this mean that if those images ever come up later that I'm accruing negative karma? I don't think so. It just comes up. Now, if I respond with craving, attachment, and so forth, yeah, sure. So there's the deal. So that's it. If, if when this comes up, if you shift over into settling the mind in its natural state and just attend loosely relaxed and just let them be, but just be present with them, then that, that can be really a solution. And frankly, the other one as well, the shamad without a sign, you've gone right into the nucleus of awareness itself. And if you can really rest there, so much in the present moment that each of these, in a way, from mindfulness of breathing, you can say, okay, a moment of mindfulness of breathing, a, a lapse, a period, a phase, one could say, okay, the whole course of in-breath. Or if that's too short, okay, in-breath, out-breath. Okay, that's, that's a unit, right? Now, when you're settling the mind in this natural state and you see some thought, some discursive thought ripple through, you say, that's a unit. Okay, I was there. I was there for that one. I wasn't caught up and carried away by it. That could be shorter than a whole in-breath or whole out-breath, right? Quite short. But okay, that was a unit. I was there for the whole thing. When you're in awareness of awareness, boy, the unit's really short. It's just right there in the instantaneous present. And so if you're there, there's really no way for a thought to get in. If you're there, just do it right now, just 10 seconds. Just be, boom, right in awareness of awareness. Only 10 seconds. It can get really quiet really quickly. Because it's like you're like a cat right at the opening of the mouse hole. That mouse is going to have a hard time even showing its face. Because right where it would show its face, the cat's right there. It's very quiet. Okay? So there we go for that. Oh, yeah. And this pranic disturbance, sure, every disturbance of the mind is also a disturbance of prana. They always go together. And oh, on the positive side, this seems like good training for introspection because one becomes so sensitive to the state of attention multiple moments per breath. Very good. Very true. Yes. This is exactly how you sharpen and refine your faculty of introspection. Just like with mindfulness, you have to give it, if you're going to hone the vividness of mindfulness, you need to do it with a finer and finer whetstone. Likewise, with introspection. It's not simply a faculty, a faculty to be used. It's a faculty to be refined so that you can detect immediately 
the occurrence of even subtle excitation or subtle laxity. That's super fine. And when you can do that, when the, when the mindfulness itself is very relaxed, stable, and clear, the introspection, introspection complements it with a high degree of acuity so that just by the sheer presence, the vigilance of introspection monitoring the flow of mindfulness, just by the sheer presence of that, it's so sharp, so fine, that its sheer presence wards off the occurrence of even subtle laxity or subtle, subtle excitation. Then you achieve, achieve stage seven. And once you've achieved that, if you go on to stage eight, then by that time, then you can finally, you give your introspection a gold watch. You say, you can retire now. Because it's done its job, especially from stage five. You need it from stage one. But especially you're refining that faculty from stage five, six, seven, up to eight. By the time you get to eight, faculty has done its work. And now even subtle excitation and laxity don't arise anymore. So then it's just pretty much a slipstream right from there to shamatha. So that's kind of a nice continental divide to go from seventh to eighth. Eighth, it's all downhill. Quite easy. Okay. Good. Um, yes, we'll go to Tiram. Uh, Tiram, um, my question is about the development or the kind of enhancement of attention over the stages of shamatha. And I was reading. I just missed the, the development of, of shamatha. Oh, of attention. Yeah. O- over the, over the like stages, stages of shamatha. Of shamatha? Yes. Yeah. And I was reading um, in one of your texts, and I'm not sure whether I've heard you say it as well, but talking about the idea that there are um, perhaps 600 pulses of consciousness right. per second. Right. right. Um, or, or kind of some number of, uh, yeah. so let's say 600. Order uh, of magnitude. Mm-hmm. Order of magnitude, yeah. And so I, I, two parts to my question. One was when we're enhancing stability and vividness like throughout the process, is that, are they kind of temporal and qualitative enhancements almost in this kind of quantitative numerical way say, as you get further and further, you can, more of those 600 pulses are sustained on the same object. Sounds that correct? And, and, if that, and then kind of relating I'm to that... I'm just listening. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not affirming or negating. Okay, so I'll leave you to answer that listening. moment. Okay, so, you want to pause there? Okay, or, yeah. Well, I guess, yeah, and, and maybe I'll quickly follow and you sure, can take sure. it like how you like. Um, so the questions relating to that were, you know, one, you know, is it feasible or is, is it the case or do, you know... I think it's the case that um, there's almost kind of like if you're graphing it, you could say that you could numerically identify this, and that's the kind of second part of the question. Um, Is there a graph, perhaps with an oscillation, that, you know, stage six, stage seven, you're kind of in the kind of, you know, 400 of your pulses every second are on the object and 500 or these things. And then kind of the second half of the question was, has there been or is there correlation in the brain, or has there been investigation into the kind of temporal and qualitative nature of attention? Right. Understood. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Very good. Yeah. For the Indo-Tibetan current, so I, I could go really elaborate here, but I'm going to try to keep it more narrowly channeled to your question. For this whole Indo-Tibetan current, Sanskrit-based, going up to Tibet, it's flourished for the last 1,200 years. Uh, there's a pretty strong kind of general view that order of magnitude. Yeah that we have roughly 600 pulses of cognition per second. And that's done with finger snap, you know, a fraction of a finger snap. Finger snap's about one-tenth of a second, so I've been told by professionals, uh, and it's one-sixtieth of that. Okay? Um, 
But now it's generally accepted, I think universally accepted, that at least for the untrained mind, the ordinary mind, nobody cognizes anything in one six hundredth of a second. It's just too short. Cognizes means you, you ascertain it, you know it, and you're able to report on it. That's the indication that you actually ascertain something. If you said, I, I, I ascertained it, but I can't remember, then, well, then why should we believe you? Right? And so one six hundredth of a second is just too short. And so what happens there is a kind of clustering effect where they will bunch. They will, they will bu- there will be a binding process among a sequence of these pulses so that they're all oriented towards the same object. And then this almost like they gel. And then 20 of them, 50 of them will gel. And they act as a unit. And I often give the example of two teams of people, tw- 20 people on one side, 20 people on the other side, with a big rope in the middle, a big rope, and the, and the river or a stream in between. And they do tug-of-war, tug-of-war. So all 20 people on this side, they're acting as a, a 40-armed entity, right? Because they're all doing the same thing. So it's like a 40-armed en- entity with all of their muscle collectively. So collectively, obviously, they're able to do something that none of, none of them individually can do. And likewise for the other side, obviously. And so something like that, there's a collective agency of this bonding or this cluster. Uh, and so, with, so there's the overall model. Right? Uh, according to modern cognitive neuroscience, cognitive psychology actually, um, the, ones that the people I've engaged with say that from what I've heard, the last I've heard, uh, 40 milliseconds, 50 milliseconds for sure, 100 milliseconds, a lot of people can ascertain something a flash of color, a sound, what have you, if it lasts one-tenth of a second or 100 milliseconds, not that, not that hard. 50 milliseconds, if you're really paying attention to the proper target area, a, l- a fair number of people can get that, but they may miss it. Get shorter than 50 milliseconds, and then you're, there's a drop-off rate pretty quickly. Um, so stability. How could we understand stability? Now, what, what we're doing now is doing a fine analysis. Thus far, we talked about course analysis, uh, course analysis, and that is in a course analysis, then you'd say, okay, for for the cycle of reciting Om Mani Padme Hum once around the, the once around the mala, so roughly a minute. <coughs> for the course of a minute, on a course analysis, one could say, as far as I can tell, I never completely disengage from the object. I was free of course excitation, therefore stage two. On occasion, I could maintain the continuity for a whole minute without totally losing the object. So for a minute at a time, I was free of course excitation. It's good course analysis. Okay? Not a good subtle analysis. Um, so what is stability here? Uh-huh. Stability is that for the clusters that some, apprehend something. So let's say you have 600, you have six, 600 units. So how many clusters will there be? 10, 15, 5, whatever. But for the clusters that actually ascertain something, that over the course of a second, 5 seconds, 10 seconds, that the, the, that the focal point or the po- focus of attention of the clusters is more and more homogenous, hitting the same target. So therefore, over the course of a whole second, you have maybe 5 clusters that hit the same target. Experientially, that will feel like continuity. Now, there, be, there may be little clusters in between where you're not ascertaining anything. They're too short. It was only five, five units. Couldn't get anything. 
Another one, 10 units. Didn't get anything. But not getting anything, you don't feel distracted. So you don't notice, because you don't notice that you're not getting anything. It's too short. So briefly put, then, um, the homogeneity of the clusters in terms of their referent, that will correspond exactly to stability. Okay? Now, clarity, the vividness, high resolution. And as you know, it goes both qualitative, being able to discern very, very subtle stimuli, as in the perfect one is settling the mind in its natural state. So very subtle, but also extremely brief, very, very brief. For this one, there will be, how do you say, you're going to get more and more clusters of briefer duration. So if you have a cluster that lasts 100 milliseconds, but it takes 100 milliseconds for it to con connect with anything, because it took all 100 people to pull the rope over the, their side. If it took 10, 100 milliseconds to cognize something, and within that 100 milliseconds, something happens that took place only 20 milliseconds, you won't get it. Because it needed to be 100 milliseconds for you to connect with it and say, ah, gotcha. But it was only 20 milliseconds, right? But now imagine that you've got a cluster, a very dense cluster, with very few duds. Because bear in mind, you're not going to just have a whole string of them. You're going to have 100 with 13 of them are duds, 50 of them are duds, 80 of them are duds. You know, you have a lot of duds just not apprehending anything. So now we're going for a high density, high like a high density disk. You've got a 20, you've got a, a 30 millisecond period here, and you have hardly any duds. They've lined up, and only a few duds. That means you're going to be able to pick up something with greater vividness, both for qualitative and temporal. Right? So the density of ascertainment, the density of ascertainment, which is just that, just like megapixels, just like, just like how many frames per second. If you want to shoot a hummingbird and see its, its wings going like that, well, that's going to be an awful lot of frames per second much more than 35 per second, which is the standard. Um, and so that's it. More frames per second means higher density. And that will, so there we are. Now, that's a Buddhist hypothesis. Now, what I know is that two experienced meditators, I won't say they were advanced or had realization or anything like that, but two experienced meditators were brought into a cognitive, a cognitive psycho psychology laboratory at the University of California, Berkeley, with a, a man who was very, a psychologist, very professional. And they, for these two, they had a white screen, and then flashed on the screen were line drawings corresponding to the seven expressions of universal emotions. That is, emotion is universal, and the facial expression is universal. This is classic Paul Lechman work. But just enough line drawing that you could tell happy, sad, disgusted, afraid, surprised, contempt, which one? Right? And with a few lines, you can, you can get it. And so... It was flashed, these images, very simple line drawings, were flashed on the white screen and then masked. Some other image came over right after them. And so they were flashed for like 40 milliseconds, like that. Very, very short. And so a lot of ordinary subjects, that is people just from the university campus, were called in. And these two experienced meditators, they scored higher than anybody else who'd ever, ever come. Uh, and they'd never done any exp any tests like this. They'd just been doing their Buddhist meditation, both in Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, but they scored better than anybody else. Having said that, if you specifically train in that task, then you can get that ability rather quickly, even without thousands of hours of meditation. But it's very spa spe uh, task-specific. 
Okay? So those are the micro expressions, the subtle expressions that Paul Ekman talks about. But those are the micro, the very, very brief duration. So to end now, as we come to 6 o'clock, um, as you probably know, it's very easy to find if you go to shamanda.org, you can see a whole presentation of what I call the International Shamanda Project with a very nice endorsement by His Holiness Dalai Lama. And then just recently, a couple of weeks ago, then another, another um, article that I wrote was published in the Snow Lion, Snow Lion Quarterly for Snow Lion Publications, on giving a rationale for an international network of contemplative observatories. These totally dovetail. The two ideas are essentially one idea with, uh, idea with two different expressions. And the idea there would be to have a whole network modeled after the Genome Project uh, of, of laboratories working independently but collaborating, collaborating and sharing data, but each one being autonomous. Um, having a number of contemplative laboratories on multiple continents, multiple teachers, and of course many different practitioners, um, and that by itself would be really great, even if there's nothing more. But if as many as possible, possible of those contemplative laboratories then work in close conjunction with some really top-notch cognitive neuroscientific and cognitive psychology researchers. Then, as people, if you had you know, 20 people, 100 people, 200 people around the world and multiple laboratories, multiple teachers and so forth, then you could be performing these cognitive behavioral tasks that psychologists are very good at devising. Uh, where it's usually visual, but you have flash something on the screen, but they have various kind of measurements, very ingenious. And then they could be giving these, that is, with full cooperation, collaboration, uh, to the yogis as they're, as they're in retreat for a year, two years, however long they're there. And then as the yogi, in, in collaboration with the teacher, who should know what he or she is talking about, gets to stage two, then you say on stage two, okay, we'll do this with 20 people, 40, 80 people. Stage two, how are you doing in these cognitive measures? And then you're going to see something coming out. It's, you know, kind of, this is standard. And so that, then you could just plot that right along the nine stages. right? And then what I'm very interested in, and it could be done, it would be subtle, it would be challenging, but just no reason to believe it would be impossible, is to do the EEG. Because the EEG is very time sensitive, and shamatha is very time sensitive. And so then get the EEG signature. But this, the, e, the EEG yeah, signature is good for each of the nine stages and then get the EEG signature for actually achieving shamatha. And do that for 100 people, and then you see, oh, that, well, that was your idiosyncrasy because you're young and you're American and you, you eat beef. You know, okay, and, and you, oh, you were practically mindful of breathing, but you were doing uh, visualization of Tara and you were doing settling the mind, so there can be a lot of differences there. But you have a lot of people, then you find, okay, where's the common ground? Where's the, where's the, you know, where's the EEG signature for each of the states? And then also, if you're doing this for 5,000 hours or something like that, then this is bound to have uh, some real impact on your brain itself. That is, new neuronal synapses, new synapses forming, new gray matter forming, neurons, fresh neurons forming. So there's, there's a lot of neuroplasticity there and neurogenesis that might, might take place that's directly correlated to the kind of practice you're doing. There's been studies on this already of London taxi cab drivers before they got GPS. Well, London, if anybody had been there, it is one heck of a complicated city. Man, I think it's maybe, the, well, no, Mexico City maybe more. That's unbelievable. That's like a country. It's got 30 million people in it. In London, what, maybe 10 million, something like that? But, you know, they did the studies in London with the, with the London cabbies. And by their doing that, and, you know, you get off at, at Paddington Station, you get off the train at Paddington Station, hop in the cab and say, take me here. And it's 10 miles away. 
And it's like going through a rat maze to get there, because there's a whole bunch of one-way streets and so forth. And then what about the traffic and so forth? You just give them the address. And a really good London cabbie 10, 15, 20 years ago would say, yes, sir. And just, why? Because the person is holding in his mind, most of them are men, holding in his mind a map. Just clink, clink, clink. And then, oh, yep, click, got it. You know? And then you find it. Well, parts of the brain develop really unusually by doing that for 10 years. Okay? So what parts of the brain actually, in terms of sheer mass, get bigger, function more efficiently, and so forth? Well, that's straight fMRI. Okay? So do fMRI study, do EEG study, do cognitive behavioral studies, and map the whole thing inside and out. And then we could have objective correlates of each of the nine stages. And then we'd have quite a celebration. And then, of course, Shamet itself. Then we have quite a celebration. So that should be done. And I've been having an interesting co uh, correspondence with a neurologist friend of mine whose whole training is in the whole, the whole background as a neurologist. It's just like sitting in a hot tub of scientific materialism. I mean, you're up to your neck in scientific materialism. No one in your field is questioning it. It's like being in the First Baptist Church of Omaha. How many atheists do you think you'll find? You know, I mean, there's really just a, there's a lot of consensus in what they believe. You know, fundamentalist Christian, fundamentalist neuroscientist. That, you know, they just don't even know how to think outside that box. They're just never trained. They never even raise the issue. And to talk about dualism, like the mind might be something other than a function property or part of the brain is kind of like thinking, well, you know, we, we worship Jesus, but other people worship the devil. Are you one of those people? You know. And shall we discuss this? Maybe there are pro, pros and cons to worshiping the devil. Shall we have maybe a Sunday service focused on the devil versus Jesus? You know? Well, it's just one of those things that will never come up in the First Baptist Church of Omaha, and that kind of discussion never comes up in the Society for Neuroscience, because it's banned. If you have that opinion, keep it to yourself because you're a bloody heretic, and we don't want to hear it. Right? And they think only two boxes. That's what really astonishes me. They think either you're a materialist or a dualist, as if William James never lived. And William James was a pluralist. He said, why should we put all of the universe in one box that we defined? Is that not a tiny bit pompous? To think that with this human brain, as wonderful as it is, that we've got one category that we defined, and the entire universe will fit into that one, materialism. Give me a break. I mean, what blind faith you, leads you, lead you to believe that nothing would be admitted out, that lies outside of your one monistic box? And William James just thought, that's, give me a break. And then the alternative seems to be, okay, well, let's be really stupid and go back to Descartes. And now you get two boxes, two reified boxes of mind and matter. Oh, but gee, how can they possibly interact? So you go from one kind of stupor to another kind of stupor. And those kind of like... Either you're modern and you're, a mon you're just a materialist, or you're really stupid and go back to Descartes and let's all start laughing at you because you're a dualist, but then you don't have a clue about how these two boxes interact with each other. And William James saw through all of that, and he said we should be pluralists, that everything doesn't fit into the, a reified matter category. Every, everything doesn't fit into a reified matter category, mind or matter. And just for starters, we might think, since we're so-called in the information age, exactly where does information fit? Is that a mental state? Is that mind or is it matter? It's neither one. But does information has, have any causal efficacy in the natural world? And it does because you just nodded. And why did you nod? Not because I'm blowing air at you. 
or that I'm creating ripples in the atmosphere. Listen very carefully, Diram. You know, the actual sound waves traveling from my mouth to your ear were pretty much the same as. I think it's foolish to think that all of reality fits into one box that we conceived of, we defined. That statement was meaningful. It may be false, but it's meaningful. The other one had no meaning. But in terms of what was physically trans- transmitted from my mouth to your ears, there's no significant difference. It's sound waves, right? And yet one causes you to nod in agreement. The other one makes people laugh. Right? For the absence, well, you know what I was getting at. And so there's a bit of chuckling. And so information has causal efficacy. And it's obvious all over the entire world. But information has no physical properties whatsoever. And information is not a mental state. It's not consciousness. It's not mind. And so we should have three categories already. But we actually had four. We have matter. That's cool. We also have energy. Energy is not the same as matter. That's why we have mass energy. Then we have space. But there's also time. We also have information. Now we have five. And we have consciousness. That makes six. Shall we stop? Or shall we, shall we be fundamentalists now and say, OK, only six. I'm a sextologist. And that doesn't mean about sex. No, don't think about it. I'm just, you know, the universe fits into six categories. And we define them. And I'm the head of the church. You know, why don't we just be open-ended about this? Why just be open-ended? All of reality, why on earth should we think, apart from that it's really comfortable, that everything fits into one box that we feel we can know something about. And if we see anything outside of it, we just assume it must be equivalent to something inside the box. So if you, if you have mental phenomena, they must be equivalent to brain states, because we don't understand mental phenomena, but we do understand brain states. So what the heck? Why don't we just say that which we don't understand is equivalent to what we do understand, and then we stand on the top of our aircraft carrier and say, mission accomplished. I really love science, but I really don't have much respect for sloppy thinking. And I don't care whether it takes place in Buddhism, science, or anywhere else. But that's sloppy thinking. It's just sloppy thinking. So it's pluralism. That's what I'd be advocating here. Hola, so. So, but working together. Working together. This could be fascinating, I think, for the neuroscientists, the psychologists, the contemplatives. And for the first time, because frankly, I haven't seen thus far for all the studies of meditation, I haven't seen myself anything that's actually helpful for meditators. I haven't seen anything. Meditation teachers can be really helpful meditators, having a good meditation. But the scientific studies, I mean, OK, tell me something that I didn't know that they're actually useful. I haven't heard it yet. That's not to say it can't. It's just starting. Good research is only about 10 years old, really you know, high quality research. But if something like this were done, and it could take 5, 10 years, because that means, number one, people should really achieve shamatha, and, and not just one or two. Get it, the, the larger the database, the better. But then with this mutual respect and the sense of true collaboration, not human being that is, not guinea, guinea pigs in, that look an awful lot like human beings being studied by the professionals, you know. That's the meditator are just subjects, like guinea pigs, pigeons, and rats, you know. So how about a full-scale collaboration where the yogis are coming in as highly trained professionals, the scientists, highly trained professionals, both with a lot of respect, both with their own worldviews, with some respect, even if they're different, and say, look, not in order to prove Buddhism or to prove scientific materialism or to disprove scientific materialism, just to find out what's true. Why don't we focus, first of all, on the contemplative technology? Is it possible or not for people in the modern world, given a conducive environment for a sustained period with good collective energy, that is nice group, group energy, and, and then a teacher available who's competent, 
and give them a year, two, three years, however long it takes, is it possible to achieve shamatha? And if so, can we monitor this multiple, using multiple methods from modern science so that everybody's enriched? And then, if that had happened, and we have the templates, behaviorally, EEG, fMRI, uh, that could actually be useful to the yogis. could actually be useful. Because then, well, in a myriad of ways, but then you'd have some ob- objective criteria, and you think, oh, maybe if I'm, I'm, I'm in stage two, I'm in stage four, then you could check, well, why don't we, why don't we run it through the lab? You know, that could be useful. Oh, yeah. So then I went way over. Let's, let's show our respect for our cooks. And I get to say my little motto. <laughs> See you around. Enjoy your Sunday. I will.